Good morning, Seven Mile Road. There is not a day of my childhood that I can remember that my grandmother was not an integral part of. She raised my sisters and me in every sense of the word. We called her Harmony growing up because the Korean word for grandma is nearly identical to that word. And, and Harmony was our tender caretaker, our constant presence growing up. On September 20th of this past year, Harmony passed away. And in processing that loss, with the kindness of many of you, you have asked me time and again what it's been like for, for me and for my family. And the instinctive, the intuitive response that is erupting out of me in confidence every single time is, well, you know, she lived a really full life. And so it begs the question, how can I be so sure? Why am I so confident in the fact that, that my grandma really did live such a really full life? We're going to be diving into Psalm 127 this morning. And one of only two Psalms that are accredited to King Solomon. And in his wisdom, in just five verses, what he's going to lay before us is this. Two potential ends for every single one of us. One of those ends he'll describe with the word vain. Now, if you've been with us for some time, the word vain or vanity triggers something in your mind and in your heart. We've journeyed together as a church family through the book of Ecclesiastes, and you know that that word in that book, used over 30 times, is the Hebrew word hevel, which is something akin to smoke, that you think you've got it all figured out, its shape, its structure, but the moment that you reach out your hand to grasp it, it, it slips right through your fingers. And that is what the book of Ecclesiastes describes as life east of Eden. It's a lot like smoke or being in the middle of a fog bank, not knowing which way is up or down, that life is paradoxical. I need you to know this morning that that's not the word that is utilized here in Psalm 127. It is not the Hebrew word hevel, but rather the word shav, which doesn't mean foggy, but empty. That is one end that this Psalm is warning us we could end up in. The other is, is a word that Solomon will use as blessed, or based on the context of the psalm that we can c conclude is, is not empty but full. And so those are the two ends that Solomon will present us through this psalm that we can find ourselves in, that we will find ourselves in. And so the question is begged this morning, well, how can I be sure? How can you be sure that you are living a life that will be full and not empty? And I think we'll come to find together this morning that the way that we can be sure that we will lead a full life is if we posture ourselves in devoted response. In devoted response. Let's look in the psalm together. Look with me in verse one of Psalm 127. It says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, in a proverbial-like fashion, this psalm beckons us towards a life that is full, marked out by a posture of devoted response by warning us of all the pitfalls that will keep us from getting there. And the first pitfall is this. Allow self-reliance to define your days. Did you see it here that the warning is clear, that phrase in vain or emptiness or purposelessness, it's right there waiting for you if you begin to build and build and build or you even watch over the city in all of your might and with all of your plans. 
But unless the Lord builds the house and unless he watches the city, it is all going to result in emptiness. And I want us to, to reckon this together, to, to see it together, that when this psalm talks about building your house, what he means is all the provision that you want to provide for your own well-being and for those in your household. This is, this is the grad school that you're going to apply for. This is the career path that you have chosen or that next job that you're going to chase after because it'll finally get you to the precipice of where you want to be financially or maybe even the neighborhood that you will finally plant roots down into to call your home. You see, all these things are necessary. They're right and they're good to think about, to even plan for. Not only that, the psalm also talks about watching over the city. Now, this is not just the provision of your home. This biblical reference that is used throughout the Bible to denote how we, we need to not just be providing for self, but protecting others. That the watchmen on the wall would see enemies come, and it was their job, their duty, their responsibility to warn everybody else to protect the others. And so this for you and for me is our, our acts of service. The ways that we partner with organizations that are, that are serving those that are impoverished and the most needy in our city. These are your acts of generosity. The ways in which you give to those that are widows and orphans and refugees. Again, both of these things, you building your house and watching over the city are necessary, right, and good things. And I need you to hear me say that this morning. And yet the warning, the pitfall is that if self-reliance defines your days, all of it will lead to emptiness. All of it will lead to emptiness. You see, because if we're honest with ourselves, the temptation, the temptation for you and I is that we are so prone to go to God with the failed inspections of our houses. Everything that we've planned for, that we've built, we've worked really hard down to the bone and we come to God and we say, how could it not have stood still? How could it not have come to fruition the way that I had planned? We demand an explanation of God of why our plans didn't pan out the way that we had assumed they would versus going to God begging for his guidance of the blueprints. You see, we, if we're honest, if I'm honest, I so often go to God with the failed inspections and not the blueprints, demanding an explanation versus coming him longing for his guidance. And I need you to hear me say this morning that that will lead to not a full life, but an empty one. You see, it's so easy for me. I read the Proverbs and I get to that one in Proverbs 19, verse 21, where, where it talks about how the, the plans of a man's mind are many. And it's only the Lord's purposes that will stand. And I will give a holy hmm to that verse every single time I read it. And yet day to day, I'm still coming to God, demanding an explanation versus coming, him, coming to him longing in a dependence, a posture of dependence for his guidance of the blueprints. And so the first step, church, the first step to, to lead a life of a posture of devoted response that'll get us to fullness and not emptiness is to not let self-reliance define our days, but rather, but rather to give God the first word, to give God the first word. Back in 1787, at the inception of our nation, the Constitutional Convention was gathering together to try their very best to, to forge the groundwork of who we would be as a country. And in May of that year, various delegates, all these leaders from around the nation at its inception, were trying their best to, to lay this framework. 
And a month had gone by and the outlook was very grim. Everyone was bickering, longing to, to stand for the things that were for their tribe and their tribe alone and not thinking about the nation as a whole. And a month later, Benjamin Franklin was accounted for saying this quote. In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived for a long time, 81 years. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers, imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Do you feel the weight of this posture? Because in the two months to follow, finally the constitution was completed. Because prayers were presented, were interceded, were, were given to God to allow him to get the first word before any business was discussed. Do you feel the weight of, of how this just rubs against everything that we are, we are so prone to do? That we've got it all backwards, if we're honest. We work and we work and we work and then we demand God to give an explanation when it doesn't pan out, when the building teeters and even falls. And this is an example of us giving God the first word. And so we need to ask you this morning, are you taking steps? Are you on the path to a life that is full by giving him your devoted response, by giving him the first word? Well, let's keep moving forward. What we're gonna to come to find in the next verse is, is not only is there a pitfall of self-reliance defining our days that'll keep us from living a life that is full, the next pitfall that's just there on the other side of the corner is that restlessness will define our nights. Look with me in verse two. It says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now this verse is a particularly convicting one for me. There's a post-it note just above my desk with this verse on it that's been there for a couple of months. Because if you're anything like me, you beat your alarm a lot of mornings. You burn the midnight oil because you're tossing and you're turning, you're, you're churning on the inside because of the, the things that are left undone on the to-do list. Or because the unsettling reality of there's still so much to do and, and who's gonna do it unless I do. And so if you're anything like me, this verse strikes really close to home. And eating the bread of anxious toil, that, that, that phrase is actually just one word in the Hebrew that, that means pain or sorrow. Eating the bread of sorrow because we are churning on the inside day after day, striving for solution and resolution, but finding that we have more sleepless nights and mornings where we're beating our alarms again and again. And if we're, if we're not careful, the pitfall that is there waiting for us is that not only will self-reliance define our days, but restlessness are nights. Restlessness are nights. And I know that I'm communicating to to God, non-verbally at first with my body language, but even verbally in my own mind, is that God, I don't know, I'm not convinced that you care here. 
I'm not really sure right now that you actually are concerned because it feels like the tides are not in our favor. It feels like when everything that I've saved up for, when the retirement that I was banking on all of a sudden goes from here to God knows where, when the job that I was just furloughed in and now have lost, all the plans that I've made for my career and the trajectory of my life have now gone to I don't know where, God. It's, it, it just feels like I, I don't know right now. I'm not convinced, God, that you care about this, about me. I know that that's what I'm communicating when I'm beating my alarm in the mornings and when I'm tossing and turning, burning the midnight oil at night. Restlessness. Wondering if God really cares. It reminds me of Mark chapter 4 when Jesus tells his disciples, it's time to go to the other side. Let's get on the boat and let's cross the sea. And what we find in that, in that narrative is that Jesus makes his way immediately down to the stern. He's got a cushion there. He lays his head to rest. And all of a sudden, for disciples who are consisted of lots of seasoned fishermen, they know a thing or two about boats and a thing or two about storms, they are petrified at the storm that comes their way. They're, they're trying to toss all the water out of the boat that's sinking in. They're rowing with all of their might to no avail, and they finally run down into the stern. And you know what they yell at Jesus' ear? They say, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care? Don't you care that the water is coming in? Don't you care that we're going to die, that we're going to perish in this place? Don't you care about us, is what they say. It's what they yell into his ear. And Jesus' response, as he rises from his sleep, he says, peace, be still. He essentially tells the raging storm to hush. And with just a couple of words, it says that, that the raging sea becomes like a sheet of glass. And he looks to his disciples and he doesn't reprimand them for all of their labor. He doesn't condemn them for trying to get the water off the boat. He looks at them and asks a very simple question. He says, do you still not have faith? What he's asking his disciples is, do you still not trust me? Do you still not trust me? And if I'm going to be brutally honest with you, there are too many nights and often too many early mornings where I don't know if I do trust Jesus. I think that restlessness of nights actually is telling God that I'm not convinced that he cares. And maybe that's true of you today. And again, that is the pitfall that will lead us to a life that is sleepless and empty. And I need you to hear this morning that if we're going to posture ourselves in devoted response to try our very best to get to a full life, the step beyond giving God the first word with all of our plans is to Give God our trust in every circumstance. To give God your trust even when the water is filling the boat amidst a bare economy, even when it all is going asunder, to continue to say, I'm going to trust you in every circumstance. Let's avoid the pitfalls of self-reliance and restlessness and instead take up a posture of devoted response. Seven Mile Road, please. And I love that uh, in Solomon's wisdom here. In Solomon's wisdom here, in just a couple of verses, he's laid it out for us. This is how you lead a life, not of emptiness, but of fullness. And then he says, come a little closer. And let me give you a pointed example. Look with me in verse 3. In verse 3, it says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's, use, of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks 
with his enemies in the gate. Now, in Solomon's great wisdom, he's laid it out for us, yes. The posture of devoted response will lead not to emptiness, but to fullness. And he says, behold, which essentially for us means lean in. Come a little closer. I'm going to extrapolate this out for us. I'm going to give us a very earthy example of this. And he says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Now, I want us to pause and recognize together that that, how we diagram that verse into our minds is critical. How we understand it, how we receive it. How is it that our, our children, that for you parents out there, that your kids are a heritage from the Lord? That word is a word that means inheritance. And as we pause and we ponder it some more, we come to understand that, that that is so true. That when we look at places in the text, in the scriptures, like Psalm 139, we come to find that, that before children have ever breathed their first breath, that it was God who formed their inward parts. It was, it was God who knitted them together in their mother's womb. It was God who has a book that belongs only to him where he's numbered every single one of their days. The number of hairs on their head, he knows them, every single one of them. The thoughts that they've, that they've ever considered, that they ever will consider, those numerous as the stars, he knows them all. And so, of course, of course, every child is an inheritance from the Lord. From the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. It says that the fruit of the womb, a reward. Now, I want us to recognize that that word reward is, is directly translated in the original language to wages. And so how is it that a fruit, that the fruit of the womb is, is a wage? It's because, again, like Solomon is laying out for us in these first couple of verses, that it is your activity. As parents of children, it is your activity to respond for, to God's activity, his initial activity. That it is so, so painstakingly true, so earthy, in fact, that every single child is an inheritance from the Lord, and yet it is every parent's responsibility to respond to respond. And I'm not just talking about in pregnancy or in delivery, but in raising of this child. That we're going to come to find that that, the equipping of your children, is your devoted response to God's first word. It is how you can continue to trust him again and again and again. And so as Solomon is extrapolating this point with a very earthy example, what he's going to say about this is that like arrows in a quiver, will be your children if you raise them in devoted response to God. Not relying on yourself and not just having restless and sleepless nights, but instead to give him the first word with all of your plans and to trust him in every circumstance. If you continue to equip your children in that fashion, they will be like arrows coming to your defense. That whenever you meet your enemy, your adversary, at the gate, the gate being where there is uh, justice being administered, where people are coming to, to condemn you, to accuse you, there in that place, if you have raised your children with devoted response to God's activity, they will come like arrows to your defense, a formidable defense. But not only that, what we recognize from this text is that, that your children raised in that fashion will not just be a formidable defense because they will come to your defense, but their lives in and of themselves, their character, their upbringing speaks a story of your character. That the defense is just in how they have been raised. And all of a sudden in that space, we come to find that, that parents have quivers full when children are raised in devoted response to God's activity. Now, I want to just make a brief aside here. That though this is a very pointed and earthy and applicable example by Solomon, 
I understand that this, this doesn't strike home or even well for everyone out there in our community. That, that if you're out there and you have experienced the, the holding of a newborn of your own, and with tears streaming down your face of joy and exhaustion, you have come to reckon with the fact that this is a miracle and it could only have been from God, an heritage from the Lord. But for others in our community, others of you, with clamoring hands, you have cried tears of sadness and exhaustion because you long for that reality. And I just wanna say this morning that, that though God does get the first word, that though every child is an inheritance, a heritage from the Lord, though he gets the first word, it does not mean that he wants the conversation to be over. It does not mean that he does not long for you to run to the closet, to lament, to cry, to plead for him, that you long for this, that you desire this so badly that though God gets the first word, it doesn't mean that the word is over. It doesn't mean that the conversation is over. And so will you choose to continue to not lean on self-reliance and on restless nights? Will you continue to run to God and long that he would provide the first word here? And hear me say this this morning, that wherever you fall on the spectrum of a quiver full of children or not, that, that God is still so worthy of your trust. He is still so worthy of your trust in every single storm. Now, with that being said, I, I want to just pause, and I, and I want us to get back to that initial question. Well, how can we be sure? How can I be sure? How can I be sure that Harmony, that my grandmother, his life was really full? It brings me back to her memorial service, uh, and I have to confess that for most of that, uh, my head was down, and I, I couldn't bring myself to look up. But when I finally did, I saw in the row in front of me, there were my grandmother's two sons and their spouses grieving the loss. And I looked down my row and I could see my sisters and our spouses there grieving the loss. And out of curiosity, I was just wondering how, how many few folks came to her service. But when I looked up, I was, I was shell-shocked to find that there were over 150 people there grieving the loss of my grandmother with us. And I have to just confess to you that I thought my grandmother knew all of 20 people at most and that maybe half of them would make it there that day, 150. And interestingly enough, the conversations that bubbled up after the fact were not just grieving the, the pain, the loss of, of harmony being gone, but it was all of us getting to celebrate the fact that her life truly was full. Several people knew of her daily devotional rhythm that every morning at 6 a.m., I thought it was just me that knew this, that she would rouse the house with reading her Bible aloud, her large texted scriptures, and she would read them aloud, and she would sing the same three hymns, and I would wake up, especially on Saturday mornings, with all the frustration pent up in my heart, and that's how she responded. That's how she, in devotion, gave God the first word every single day. And my grandmother's life wasn't easy, filled with hardship, that when she first immigrated to this, to this country, she lost her husband just a few years in, the one constant in her life. And in that space, she chose to give God her trust again and again and again with many tearful nights. She chose to trust him through and through in every storm. 
And we were all together in that place able to recount how full her life really was. You see, it wasn't because her quiver was full with just her kids that she raised and the grandkids that she raised. It was because as I looked across the room, we all knew that her life was marked out by a posture of devoted response. She loved to rely not on herself, but on God. Each and every day, she chose to place her trust in him and not in the work that she could do, burning the midnight oil. And so we celebrated her life and continue to do it still. And so how do I know? How do I know that, that Harmony's life was full? What we even see in this text is I know that when she got to heaven's gates, the place of judgment and justice, where all of it is administered, and the enemy, the adversary, is coming to highlight all of the shameful things of her life, the sinfulness that marks so many of her years and her moments and her days. In that space, I know that there is no quiver full of her kids or her grandkids that she raised. The only thing that she could possibly look to in her quiver would be to point up at the one, the Lamb of God that is seated right there on the throne. And as she would utter the phrase, the only refrain that she could say, her only defense is that Jesus saves. That Jesus saves. She would point to him and she would look to him and long for him, remembering that of all the humans to ever walk this earth, there was only one that could have been self-reliant. Only one that did not have to rely on the Father, and yet every single day he did. Not a single move, not a single day without it being run by the Father. Submitting completely to his authority and his plans. And though he was beloved, the only begotten son of God, instead of deep sleep every night, he ate the bread of sorrow of pain, of anxious toil, by drinking the cup of divine wrath down to the dregs for you and for me. And as he was arrested and taken to the gate where justice and judgment in a wrongful way were to be administered, he was condemned. He was mocked and he was scorned by the very ones that he came to save. And he was forced to, to carry a Roman cross outside the gate to a trash heap called Golgotha where he would be crucified, spat on, where the nails would be pierced into his hands and to his feet to die the death that you and I deserve to die, where God would have to turn his very face away because all of a sudden in that space, he is eating the bread of pain, of sorrow, drinking the cup of divine wrath in full. And in that, in that moment that my, that my grandmother got to the gate and she would point to Jesus and say, only him, only by his life, that was perfect. Only by his death that atoned for me and only by his resurrection now that he has ascended to the rightful place, the name above every name, the only name that she could utter, the only defense for her would be that Jesus saves. And so Seven Mile Road, I, I need you to hear me say this morning, you want to live a full life. You want to avoid the pitfalls that will get you to emptiness, self-reliant days and restless nights you want to get to the point where at the gate that all of a sudden in that space you can know without a shadow of a doubt that your life was full. Posture your days. Posture your years in devoted response to God. Give him the first word with every single one of your plans and give him your trust in every circumstance. And in that space, on that path, I'm convinced that we will lead full lives.
Amen. Let me pray. Well, Jesus, I am amazed by you. And uh, I thank you for, for the opportunity to posture my life in a way, God, that, that can actually lead to fullness. It is only made possible by, by you, by your sacrifice, and by your kindness and compassion. Father, I thank you that, that it was your plan all along and that plan of redemption has ushered me into a place, God, that I did not know that I could be, that all of a sudden I'm so convinced today more than I was yesterday that, that for my grandmother and God willing for me, God, that I will get to that gate and all of a sudden when my only defense is that Jesus, you save, God, that that will be enough. And so I thank you that that is available for everyone, for all of us. And so I'm begging you now that if there's there's anybody listening and tuning in today, God, and they are still wondering what will happen at that gate in that moment, God, I beg you that they would find you reaching out your hand, hands that have been pierced by nails, hands that are, are strong enough, are willing enough to carry us and to beckon us near. God, I pray that they would find your hand and cling to it. God, that they would hear how you have responded with your first word. That's how you have chased after them. And God, that our devoted response is to say yes to you, to trust you. And so God, I pray for saving faith this morning. I pray that that would happen all around our city and even in our world today. God, thank you for making a way. We praise you now because you are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.